the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Brought to you by EP Wealth. This is the Rob Black Show. How much do you think you need to retire? Quick quiz. What's the dollar amount that you think you'll need when you hit that magical number and say, I'm done working? I'm guessing you're thinking like 65. That's the number that I come up with in my head when I'm asked that quick question. How much do you need to retire? I know the answer is a lot more than people think. 38% of Americans think they'll need less than $500,000 to retire. That's a far cry from the traditionally recommended amount of $1 million. But the truth is you'll probably need somewhere between $500,000 and $5 million. And it's not one size fits all. Depending on your financial situation, which we all differ like gold and clay, where you want to retire is obviously going to be a big one. I've got an extended family member who lives just outside, just south of Tampa, and she's writing these crazy, she's crazy first, first and foremost, she's crazy. Second, she's really, really, really crazy on Facebook. And um, she writes these long Facebook posts that me and my spouse get around the fireplace and we just like snicker. Like, oh my God. Like, did she just really talk about in 13 paragraphs her prep for the the hurricane? And I guess, I guess the answer is yes. 38% of Americans think they'll need less than 500,000 to retire. 30% believe they'll need 500,000 to a million. 14% I think they'll need between one and a one and a half million. Eight percent said they'll need between one and a half million to two million. Three percent believe they'll need two million to two and a half million. Two percent believe they'll need two and a half to three million. And six percent believe they'll require more than three million. So just do some basic math. If you retire at 65, let's say you live 20 years to 85, hundred thousand dollars a year. $2 million to get to 85. But what about inflation? What about the roof? What about the car accident that you get in? What about the neighbor who insists that you replace your fence? So there is no right answer. Now, how do you figure out what to withdraw safely? You're going to want to err on the side of caution. I am a moderate in everything that I do. I do my exercise at a moderate level. I don't go to extreme. I do my diet on a moderate level. I don't go to extremes. Um, I don't drink whiskey, but if I were to drink whiskey, I'd do that on a moderate level. <clears throat> Is retiring on $500,000 possible? Sure. But that's going to be basic substance to keep a roof over your head, food in your fridge, clothing on your back. Access to some sort of transportation, communication, health insurance, and that's about it. 
more and more Americans are looking overseas to retire. And I'm not against the idea. It's just I have kids and I want to kind of see the kids. And I don't want to go, come to Mexico, see dad, or Panama, or Colombia, or Costa Rica, or Portugal. All very big U.S. expatriate communities. Explosive growth. How to boost your retirement savings. Your 401k is the best way to do it. Um, Investing in down markets is the best way to do it. Asking for a raise is a great way to do it. Considering a, a second job, a weekend job if you have to. I don't look at tax refunds as, woohoo, let's go to Mexico or let's go to a casino or let's get Raiders tickets. I look at a tax refund as I paid too much tax during the year. Shame on me. So anytime I get a tax refund, a bonus, um, credit card rewards, I always save it. It always, always, always goes to savings. And I have enough to live now till the day I die. My kids have enough to live till the day they die. Can you imagine the stress I've taken away from them? I've given them the, the opportunity. If they want to go to medical school, they can go to medical school, school. If they want to be a dental hygienist, they can be a dental hygienist. They're not going to have to stress about cash, which is, I think, one of the, the stupider things we do in our society is that we create in our one lifetime this massive race to get money. It's a bit on the silly side. So 38% of Americans think they need less than 500000 I'll tell you, the answer for me is what I would need is more like $2.5 million for my spouse, another $2.5 million. And for the way I want to spend on grandchildren, probably another million. See, I haven't thought that one through, out through. Because did you see I said, probably, probably a million. Too quick of an answer, right? Two off the cuff. Retirees list their three major retirement regrets, and they're all so common. Waiting too long to start saving, investing too conservatively in their youth, and dipping into retirement funds. I saw a guy who had a HELOC from a couple years ago. He's 72 years old, dropped me an email. And his HELOC's gone from 3% to 7%. And he now wants to dip into his retirement savings to pay off his HELOC. And I said, well, you could certainly do that, but that's probably going to increase your tax bracket this year. Probably not the most ideal thing to do when the market's down. I said, just pay it month to month. Like You kind of got screwed. You kind of played a game where you kept a home equity line of credit around and then interest rates went skyrocketing high on you. One minute. Stupid you. You didn't see the worst case scenario there, did you? But now he wants to solve the problem in one month. And I'm like, in six months from now, if the market's up 10%, way better to wait six months. Now, on the other hand, if six months from now, the market's down another 20% and he can no longer afford the HELOC and he has to figure out groceries or HELOC, he made a mistake. So did we all see the mistake he made? He didn't have enough emergency cash on the sidelines to handle a an emergency situation like a rise in interest rates. Anyhow, how much do you need for retirement? And what are the biggest mistakes in retirement? They go hand in hand, don't they? I'm Rob Black talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Irreverent, over the top, and smart as a whip. This is the Rob Black Show. 
always find it interesting when days like you talk about weather and it actually is an investment conversation. Hurricane Ian is heading for Tampa. It didn't get deep in the Gulf, so oil rigs didn't have to shut down aggressively, which could have caused the price of gas and oil to go higher. Interesting thoughts, right? Um, but it also didn't hit the more expensive side of the uh, country, the Atlantic side. So Tampa, this is going to probably be the sixth most expensive hurricane ever in the United States. How is that much wind and water equal $70 billion? It's phenomenal to me to watch the numbers swell every year. Speaking of phenomenal, let's bring in our guest, Patrick O'Hare, briefing.com, a reliable source of domestic and international news that you can use. I really like the website. I start my day every day with page one. Today, page one is kind of gloomy there. Um, Mr. O'Hare, it's kind of a gloomy market these days and not a lot of fun reading on Bank of England bond purchases being a top story. How are you, sir? Yeah, good morning, Rob. I'm sorry to have uh, started your day on that note, but uh, I guess the facts on the ground are the, are the tough facts. And, you know, what the Bank of England is doing is is driven by, you know, uh, some bad things, frankly. And um, uh, we're not too sure, though, if what the Bank of England is prescribing here is ultimately going to be the cure. Um. A lot is, it's compounding, isn't it? So Bank of England um, had to step in to help their bond market. The new government comes in. They say, let's do tax cuts. People will like that. And the stock market worldwide said, no, no, no. We don't like that at all. It's it's interesting the way money made the right decision. Or money had a different decision than what the politicians thought pulling off. And that kind of reminds me of our own pandemic and how we spent money and some of the ramifications that it, it causes down the road. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just it's a mess to put it, you know, bluntly. Um, right. uh, it's a fiscal and monetary policy mess, and uh, and some of it has been, you know, brought it, you know, these authorities brought it upon themselves in some respects. Um, you know, the Bank of England, like the Fed, you know, didn't move quickly enough on its own part to try to get inflation under control. Um, but the timing of this unfunded tax cut on the part of the new UK government was just pretty astounding, frankly. And and the capital markets, you know, uh, the collective wisdom of the capital markets rendered judgment that it was a real policy mistake. And you saw that in the collapse of the pound, which fell to a record low against the dollar. And you saw it with the, uh, you know, with gilt yields, you know, shooting sharply higher um, and, and it had a little bit of a domino effect just because it created more uncertainty for the capital markets, which in the U.S. manifested itself in, you know, in lower stock prices uh, because, uh, you know, what we're dealing with at home is also, a, you know, a Fed that is basically trying to correct its first policy mistake by not raising rates quickly enough, uh, by now raising them very quickly and telling the, everyone that they're going to keep raising them on a somewhat aggressive line. And uh, and that could ultimately, well, from the market standpoint, that's invited the concern that that particular approach will invite the next policy mistake of over-tightening and uh, ushering in a recession for the U.S., which is then going to have reverberations around the world as well. 
Is there any positive news to hang our hats on with yesterday, the Dow hitting the bear market territory earlier in the week and the S&P 500 hitting new lows? Christmas is 85 days away, roughly, and people are saying they're going to cut back spending. Is there anything to look forward to in the near term? Um, maybe a, a CPI well, number that's down a little bit more? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, Biogen had some good news today <laughs> on its uh, early Alzheimer's treatment, but that's uh, you know more stock-specific, but uh, clearly good news if that uh, you know ultimately gets approved and, and those results bear out in um, – you know, uh, for a lot of sufferers of, of Alzheimer's, but, you know, setting that point aside, uh, it, you know, the, the, the good news function right now is it is hard to, to pinpoint. I mean, one thing that, uh, you can probably latch onto, you know, as a, a long-term investor, and this is someone with multi-year time horizon is that you do have stock prices that are, are sharply lower than they were obviously at the start of the year. Um, you know, we have um, some very negative sentiment readings, uh, which can be looked upon as contrarian catalysts. Uh, but, um, you know, as a colleague of briefing.com has, has suggested that, you know, when when the action in the currency and, and, uh, and the bond markets kind of take center stage, uh, even though sentiment is leaning sharply negative in the stock market, you know, that doesn't necessarily become the immediate contrarian rally point that some people think it might because because of the distraction of what's going on in those other markets um, and what they're, you know, potentially signaling. Um, so, uh, in other words, you know, there could be some more near-term pain here before that uh, extreme negativity turns around and, and, you know, people see it as a, you know, as a, as a buying uh, point. But, uh, but in general... You know, stocks are lower priced. They come down in value. Um, the interest rate cycle uh, arguably is closer to an end than the beginning. And uh, and if interest rates can stabilize and start to come down, then, you know, the ingredients are potentially there for, for better performance for the stock market. But uh, But it's just no guarantee here over the near term that we'll get to that point. And so you do have to be patient and you have to pick your spots. And uh, and from a long-term standpoint, continue to dollar cost average here. Firm that I work with, I talked to the investment policy committee and what they're doing quite smartly, I think is upgrading everything to better quality. Um, their bonds are going better quality. Their investment decisions are better quality. Um, maybe not the best returns in a good market, but safer returns in a down market. Um, is it batten down the hatches for Hurricane Ian, kind of like the same batten down the hatches for maybe what you might be doing in your personal finances and, and what you're doing as far as advice goes? Or um, is there a different way of well, explaining that maybe? Yeah. Well, you know, it's kind of ironic right now in that when treasury yields were, you know, um, below, you know, 1%, uh, mm-hmm. hugging, hugging the zero bound in some respects, everyone was clamoring for you know, higher yields. There was no al- alternative, right, right. To, to equities. Um, and uh, and now that we've gotten these higher yields, you know, there's a lot of um, hemming and hawing in terms of the negative effects of those those higher yields. But, you know, for investors, it does become, you know, you do have a better option now or, or another option, I should say, 
that can generate some, you know, risk-free income for you if you, you know, hold those treasury securities to maturity. And, uh, and, and it's, you know, we, we kind of touched on this, I think, a little bit last week. It's just like this, this return to normalcy, if you will, in terms of what, how the interest rate structure looks uh, is, is painful at first, but, you know, there's a, there's a payoff in the end, uh, so to speak. And, and so that, you know, that's something that it's tough to digest right now, but it's also, you know, relatively good thing here uh, in the mix of everything else that now you can have more uh, diversification and there, that there are other alternatives to just stocks. But, um, but the, the, the trade-off right now, anyway, is that what you might be able to pick up now uh, in the treasury market, um, you know, there's the imbalance because you're still getting, you know, sharply lower stock prices and uh, you may not have hit a bottom there yet in the stock market. And so, uh, so it's a tough equation still, but, um, but in the grand scheme, I mean, I think it's, it's uh, creating some, some better investment alternatives and more attractive return options for, for investors seeking a diversified investment portfolio. It's interesting. I'm going to get a giggle out of you. I think um, to start my show this morning, I, I wrote down how long do bear markets last. And I just wanted to pull up some fresh statistics and the average bear market lasts about 289 days. And you start doing the math and we're kind of getting there in the United States. Um, <clears throat> if we count January one as the start of the bear market or January three, when we had a high or whatever it was, but then I also remember they can last as much as five years or they can last as little as two months. I'm like, do I talk about this out loud? Do I give people hope that, you know, we, we could be done soon? Um, yeah. And I'm like, no. And yet there was a, a research report out this morning that says one in three people are cutting back how much they're putting in their 401k due to inflation costs in their life. And I'm like, that's the one I chose to focus on. Try not to cut down on your 401k. And maybe next week I'll talk about bear market links. Yeah, and well, you can also see markets just kind of do nothing for extended periods as well, you know, going sideways and just kind of being range bound for for many years as well. Um, uh, and in an environment like that, I mean, it, you know, you still you want to basically, like as you alluded to, you know, uh, seek out quality and and companies that have a well covered dividend that. Uh, can help on the total return side of things. But, you know, this is an interesting period, though, Rob, I think, because, you know, you have a, a whole generation of investors that has basically just kind of grown up on, you know, zero interest rates and bull markets. And uh, and there's a, you know, there's a, an inflection right. point has been reached here, seems to be anyway, uh, that we're not going to be, you know, moving back to that type of uh, realm uh, anytime soon. So it is a more challenging investment environment, and and I think uh, what you spoke of in terms of the investment mm-hmm. committee you've worked with, you know, gravitating more toward quality is 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 certainly a good option here at, at this at this juncture. But um, you know, so it, it's going to take some getting used to that. Yep. You know, we cannot necessarily rely on uh, the Fed to come bail us out every time the stock market has a problem, and I think that's the message of Fed Chair Powell right now. Brought to you by EP Wealth. This is the Rob Black Show. Have you turned on CNN recently? This is not a commentary on political content. CNN is trying to cut down on um, the political news. So I turned on CNN yesterday, mid-afternoon, to watch a little hurricane. 
I don't know why, but it's it's damn good TV to me. Um, it's just jarring to see. Twenty five years ago, before I moved to the Bay Area, I was told, "Don't move to the Bay Area. There's earthquakes." I'm like, "Well, there's hurricanes and tornadoes here. They 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 do a lot of damage too on the East Coast." Um, and people just roll their eyes like, oh, "You'll find out." I'm not here to talk about and jinx myself on earthquakes. I, I don't think they're any fun in any way, shape, or form. I don't think hurricanes are any fun, except for if you're on dry land and watch them on CNN. Like, I, I, I didn't. There's a house in that guy's front yard. <laughs> you're like, yeah, you just saw that too. With Hurricane Ian ripping through Florida, um, a lot of people wonder how well their home insurance is going to cover and fair in a natural disaster. I don't even think about my homeowner's insurance until I see a hurricane destroy someone else's financial life. When I hear two feet of rain, I go, what would two feet of rain in 36 hours do to my swimming pool? I'm like, ooh, I don't think I could pump it out fast enough, to be honest with you. And the neighbors don't like when you pump chlorinated water into the streets. So you're kind of like, how do I do this discreetly? How do I do this uh, environmentally safely? Like you can see how natural disasters put people in these compromised situations of like, and that's an easy one. We're talking about chlorinated water. We're not talking about your car floating away. So I did start thinking about my insurance yesterday. It's a shame. That's what it takes. Um, I try to set up on my calendar two times a year to go over my insurance issues. So it could be June 1st, July 1st. It could be January 1st, January 15th, whatever you want. Even if your insurance covers the destruction, it may not be enough. Many home buyers, I'm sorry, not homeowners, simply do not have adequate protection to cover all their losses. And because of a tax reform law, uninsured losses can only be deducted in specific cases. Florida is home of 79% of all homeowner insurance lawsuits. How is that possible? There's a big argument. And I, you tell me where you, you fall on this one. Uh, you live in Miami. It's beautiful. It's on the beach. Um, why does the federal government bail you out? And when I say the federal government, I'm talking about the taxpayer in Modesto, California. I'm talking about the taxpayer in Utah. Why does the average taxpayer do FEMA relief, do tax relief for people who live in beautiful cities? That's a big debate this time. It's interesting watching news, trying to figure out angles. Um, even if your insurance covers the destruction, it, it's typically not going to be enough. It's too early to tell what the damage projections are going to be like. Is it going to be twenty billion, forty billion, sixty billion? Fortunately for Florida, the the storm turned into a Category One tropical storm quicker. It did not stay a Category Four, Category Five hurricane. I think it was like Category Four at its highest, but there were some parts of it that probably hit the wind speed limits that put it into a category five 
it's different being a homeowner and a, and a renter. As a renter, I had renter's insurance. As a homeowner, I have homeowner's insurance. I've never really made a big claim against either. So in my head of heads, I'm checking it twice a year. But also as I age, I'm like, that was kind of unnecessary. Now, again, you insure what you can't afford to lose. If my home today were to get hit with 36 inches of water and the pool were to flow into the home, that would be a big financial hit for me. That's why in theory I have it. So I I had to ask the questions yesterday. I've never owned a pool in my life. This is the first year. I had to ask the question, uh, should I call my insurance company, USAA, and ask if we got 36 inches of rain, would it be covered? So I got off my butt and I called USAA and I had that question answered. You should have some questions answered about your home. Uh, I live in earthquake country. I know what's covered and not covered because that was kind of a no-brainer. The The big question was 36 inches of rain. Um, what would happen? And keep in mind, last year we had, in December, we had a storm that that drummed like 20 inches over three or four days. It was a crazy rain. And then December didn't get anything else, right? Or the year got nothing in January and February. It was like, yes, our drought's going to be over. And then January and February just never materialized. So last year I, I learned how to drain a pool. This year I learned about, am I covered or not? No direct hits occurred in Florida over the past three hurricane seasons until Ian. Florida is the site of 79% of homeowners insurance lawsuits over claims filed nationwide, even though Florida's insurance receives only 9% of all homeowners insurance claims. So they're in a litigious part of the country. Homeowners insurance covers damage sustained from most hazards, including a tornado, hurricane, severe rain, storm, fires, wind. Um, But homeowners insurance will pay to repair the structure of the property up to the insured amount and other detached structures like garage or uh, sheds, typically about 10% of the main structures insured amount. It also covers possessions inside the home. Typically up to 50 to 70% of home structures are insured. Landscaping elements such as trees and shrubs are generally reimbursed at about $500 per item. Florida is a state of crisis. Residents currently pay the highest homeowners insurance rates in the United States at an average of $4,200 a year. That's three times the U.S. annual average of $1,500. Hurricane Andrew, which killed 23 people in the United States and three in the Bahamas, caused an estimated $15.5 billion in total insured losses. That created insolvency in 11 insurance companies. They just went completely out of business. If uh, another Andrew hit, which was a Category 5, and it were to just strike south of Miami, uh, it would cause over $138 billion of damages. So Florida is kind of vulnerable to hurricanes. And that's seriously underestimated in the media. Um, again, the question now comes up, how much should the federal aid, how far should we go to covering people who live in nice homes in nice places with the thought that they have insurance, but the insurance companies aren't covering enough. So the federal government steps in and and tries to make people as right as possible. 
Damage from flooding and earth movement, which includes earthquakes, mudslides, landslides, sinkholes, is excluded from homeowner's insurance. Now, in a hurricane, how much of it's wind damage? How much of it is flooding? I'm seeing a lot of flooding damage. To get flood and mudslide protection, which I once lived on the side of a hill that had some small mudslides. I was just renting, but in my head of heads, I'm like, I wonder if the insurance would cover this. To get flood and mudslide insurance, you got to pay a separate policy from the federally funded National Flood Insurance Program or a private insurer. You also have to buy separate coverage for your, your possessions. They're typically not included in flood policies. If I had to replace every item in my home, it's going to be a financial mess. It's going to hurt. But I do one of the more anal things. If you were to go through my phone, you see some pretty sexy photos. If you were to go through my phone, you'd see a lot of photos of like, why did he take eight photos of his kid playing soccer when he could have done, just taken one? Forgot to delete seven of them. If you were to go through my phone, you'd find pictures of my home, pictures of my goods, pictures of my possessions. Um, my... I would probably have receipts for everything because I tend to shop at three to five places like Amazon, Best Buy. But I also take pictures to show I did have this. I didn't sell it. This was the latest version of my home. And then every three to five years, I probably delete photos and retake new photos, right? So you got to make sure that you're properly covered. And that typically comes with a phone call or two. Insurers stand ready to help their policyholders recover and rebuild after Hurricane Ian. That's the the messaging that you get for sure. But the reality is it's up to you to really know what's insured and what's not. For earthquakes, you must pay a separate policy from a private insurer, or if you live in California, from the California Earthquake Authority. In some states, insurers will cover sinkholes if you buy separate coverage. I, you know, I've never gone, I wonder why I live on a sinkhole. So I'm probably not as protected as I think I am because I could be living on a sinkhole. I live on kind of a side of a hill and it's a pretty moist hill because it's close to the ocean. A homeowner's policy will reimburse you for additional living expenses if you have to live outside the home. I've seen insurance work really, really well in wildfires in California for people that were really, really informed and aggressive with their insurance company. I've seen insurance work very, very poorly for people. I honestly think this is one where it takes you to be battle-ready, battle-born. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Questions about how to invest in your retirement? Check out robblackshow.com and get in on the conversation. Subscribe to the podcast and video channels. No one cares more about your money than you do. It's time to start to feel good about your financial future. robblackshow.com. robblackshow.com. So I want to talk about what do you do if you're in retirement or near retirement as the market falls. If you're in the early stages of retirement, this is a new one for you. And I get that. And I just want you to file this away in the back of your head. If this is five, 10 years from now and it's you, you're likely in a rough spot. You're seeing your portfolio shrink. Here's what you do. Most portfolios have lost value. The S&P 500 is down about 20% so far for the year. 
This is a sequence of return risk scenario. It matters most at retirement when you're selling assets for income. You need to sell a larger number of shares to get the same amount of money. Those shares are then gone. So even if the market bounces back, your portfolio won't recover as much. The newly retired are particularly vulnerable because they're relying on a pot of money, their nest egg, to finance the next 20 to 30 years of their life. Sequence of return risk is less of a concern for someone further along in retirement because retirees typically shift to safer, more conservative investments and have fewer years to pay for them. Plus, the investors may have benefited from portfolios boosted by strong returns early in retirement. So this is just really for the people who just right now are retiring or in the last three years. If retirement is a decade or more away, what happens to market today is mostly irrelevant. You just allow the compounding to work for you and you recover over those years. Someone retiring now, of course, doesn't have that luxury. If this describes you, there's several several things you can do to cut down on the damage. You have to look at your portfolio and assess what it's likely going to mean for the portfolio in the long term. If you run a return risk simulation for every year dating back to 1977, including some of the worst years in recent memories when the S&P 500 losses were steeper than now, in the financial crisis that started in 2017, the S&P 500 lost 51.9%. In the dot-com crash, the S&P 500 lost 36% in 2000. Black Monday in 1987, 33%. Now, those are... Three big ones, and this is turning into a big one too, right? But we're still at only 20. In 2007, we went down 51%. Don't shift to an all-cash portfolio. The market recovers. The savings would look very different if you started going more cash. The two approaches break even for a while, but then the investment portfolio versus the 40-60 stock uh, bond cash uh, bond stock portfolio, and bonds are down 30% this year. That is something that is mind-blowing. Um, the pandemic was a perfect example. Those who cashed out missed the sudden rebound. If you remember in 2020, the markets in March fell aggressively down 20% and then roared. And if I hear the phrase coming out of your mouth, I'm going to take my money out and sit on the sidelines and just see what happens one more time. I'm going to start slapping people. With this year's drop, average returns are more in line with the annual 5 to 10% versus more than 25% gains from last year. When you think of that, your portfolio performance may not be that far behind. The last two stocks to really get hit in the S&P 500 were Apple and Tesla, and they've both been getting hit this week pretty good. Some things you could do if you're in retirement is reduce your withdrawal rate. And we're going to use just the number that is a starting point for most people, 4%. If you can cut that down, it's going to improve your long-term results. 
if your portfolio was now 800,000, you could take out $32,000 a year. That's 4%. Using a variable withdrawal strategy, taking out more in good investment years and less in bad ones. When the market is down, you could have the attitude that I'll spend less to take pressure off my portfolio. You could diversify your portfolio right now. Greater investment diversification could speed up how quickly your portfolio recovers. If you've been only in growth stocks like Apple and Google and Microsoft, um, you're being a hit harder than the market. You're down 30% versus the market that's down 20%. Because you were too lazy, not too lazy. You just didn't want the, the, the healthcare stocks. You didn't want the Coca-Cola stocks. Um, if I had just retired and I was going to go completely cold turkey and not work, I would, I, I'd get a job right now because that's going to cut down the amount of money that I need right now. Um, none of these are attractive. Um, it should tell you if you're five, 10 years away from retirement, that's when you start planning. Maybe you want to be more conservative. So when these years hit like this year, you're not freaked out by it. Um, I think I told you earlier this year, I started buying some conservative stocks like John Deere, um, Caterpillar, excuse me. That was a Freudian slip. Um, buying Caterpillar for the dividend and dividend only. And for the next 10 years until I retire, I'm in reinvesting that dividend back into share more shares of Caterpillar. Um, my goal is to have a dividend portfolio create at least three hundred and fifty dollars to $400,000 of income for me in retirement. Then I'll throw in a little social security. I'll throw in a little bit more liquidity in other areas, maybe a side business, maybe a rental or something like that. Um, but that's my goal. And I, I feel pretty comfortable. Last year, I pulled in well over $300,000 in dividends. So I'm kind of there already. But for now, I'm just reinvesting those dividends into more shares. You can find me online at Rob Black Show, Twitter Rob Black Show, YouTube Rob Black Show. Brought to you by EP Wealth. This is the Rob Black Show. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.